Welcome to the Team Health Podcast program, Beyond Clinical Medicine, What They Don't Teach You in Residency. I'm Rob Strauss, Team Health Chief Medical Training Officer, and this podcast is one of our series discussing the impact of the environment on illness. Today, specifically, we'll discuss a subset of heat-related disorders. Certainly, we don't like hot weather. But does it worsen illness, and is there a particular danger for those with mental illnesses? Actually, there are data to help us answer this question. And today, we are privileged to have Dr. David Hogan as the guest host for the program. David is Team Health's Vice President of Educational Development, as well as the leader of the Emerging Infectious Disease Task Force. He has expertise and is published in graduate education, trauma, and several other topics. He leads a life dedicated to improving medicine as we know it. And David will introduce our guest expert, Dr. Peter Crank. David, thank you. Thanks, Rob. And welcome, everyone, to Beyond Clinical Medicine, where we take the time to talk to you about things they may not have taught you in medical school. Our guest today is Dr. Peter Crank. He's an assistant professor of geography at the University of Waterloo in Canada. He actually started his career in broadcast meteorology with a bachelor's of science from Mississippi State University. He then worked in Kentucky and Alabama before transitioning to the study of urban climates while getting a PhD in geography at Arizona State University. His expertise in urban climate and urban heat has led him to working in research involving numerical modeling of the atmosphere, thermal walks, and mobile weather stations, risk perceptions of heat among the elderly, and our topic today, relationships between mental health and heat. He's had the pleasure of studying these topics in Phoenix, Arizona, Houston, Texas, Los Angeles, California, and Singapore. Peter is currently joining us from Stillwater, Oklahoma, and the traditional lands of the Catawan, Kiowa, Dinoan, and Siouan families, as well as the Wichita and affiliated tribes and the Osage Nation. Welcome, Dr. Peter Crank. Thanks for having me, David. Your work was uh, sort of stunning to me as an emergency physician. All those years I thought I had the issue of uh, heat illness and risks associated with that pretty well understood. And you had some comments in particular about mental illness and schizophrenia and the risks associated with heat emergencies um, that really made a difference to me. So what got you hooked on this? I mean, you started out in in meteorology and in, in media, and now here you are, PhD, uh, and you're collecting uh, data that uh, can impact entire populations and the lives of people. Yeah. So what really got me into this when I was back when I was working in broadcast meteorology and television after I finished my bachelor's, um, I was working on my master's at the same time, and I was really interested in generally speaking how architecture and urban planning how those relate to the weather and climate around us. But as I was working in television, I can distinctly remember several anecdotal instances where I would be uh, on air uh, and my co-anchors who are covering the news would be talking about um, various types of 
civil unrest within the region or nationally as well. Um, two specific instances were um, the Ferguson riots in Missouri, as well as um, the riots and protests in response to police brutality uh, in Maryland. Both of those were in 2014, 2015. Um, and the same time that they were talking about that on the news, they would then toss to me to talk about the weather. And I would say, well, there's a heat wave. Um, and so I had these experiences where I'm working in this heat wave space and hearing about uh, people's um, unrest and frustration at being becoming something that's even violent at times. Uh, and then we all also have these anecdotal experiences ourselves. When we get really warm and overheated, we tend to be more irritable. We tend to have less patience for other people. We get really ticked off at things that normally don't tick us off. Um, so those were all sort of things in the background that when I moved to Arizona State to get my PhD, um, were all sort of simmering in the back of my mind. Uh, and then I walk into one of my first classes and we talked about climate change and health. Um, and we talked about all sorts of things like um, physiological health and well-being and how humans adapt to extreme heat. But one area that was lacking in part due to a lack of research was this space around mental health and climate. So those are all sort of the things that brought me into this space of looking at mental health and heat, uh, particularly looking at it in terms of public health and uh, hospitalization record data. I mean, that, that's remarkable. Um, there are so many spaces that um, people who do basic science, various kinds of, uh, of research, people who take care of patients, and uh, potentially also do clinical science, uh, clinical investigation, which you know are quite a bit different than some aspects of uh, basic science. And oftentimes, the things that we both come up with in our own areas significantly impact each other. And we really need to know the information that the other group has come up with. Well, you're really in sort of a unique position of being in that space where there's basic science going on and that basic science overlaps with and interacts with public health and clinical medicine at this this great intersection. Do you have any perspectives or thoughts about how we might make that sort of thing work better? Yeah, I think I probably have too many thoughts at times uh, <laughs> in this space. Um, but uh, in terms of the communication between these different professional fields, I think one of the things, at least from my end and my experience, has been uh, we as sort of the, the basic scientists, the scientific researcher, and the academic, we have not placed collectively, placed a lot of value in the communication of what we do to people outside of our own small academic circles. So that is sort of a, a call that we see across academia right now as a push toward valuing and recognizing things that uh, move our science, not just from the lab or the lab bench, but move it into the community. Uh, we're seeing that more and more as a push within the academic space. So I'm encouraged by that, but we're still learning how to do that um, and still uh, also then learning who do we talk to to be able to do that. Um, so I think that's one thing on the academic side. Um, I think on as a whole within the intersection, one of the things that we, I think, collectively struggle with is that we are all 
we're all working really, really hard on the things that we're already doing. And we don't have a lot of time or mental capacity, uh, I think, to be able to take the time to listen to this podcast and learn a little bit more about our fields uh, or our fields as they interact with each other um, in our downtime. And I think, you know, that is both a, uh, a call for us as individuals to, to take a bit more of that time. Uh, but I think it's also a call for us as uh, whole societies and whole fields uh, and disciplines to say, we need to do more than just uh, overwork our employees to the bone on the things that they need to do their day to day. But we also need to work on professional development of our employees. And then, you know, there's opportunities like this of taking the time to uh, interact with people outside of your discipline and to be a guest on a podcast or uh, be willing to be interviewed by uh, a scientific journalist to cover some sort of news that's going on in society. Well, thanks. That's that helps to put that sort of in a capsule to um, to think about. And uh, communication is so tremendously important. It's amazing. Just in the brief few times that we've had a chance to interact, um, I've got a probably three or four or five pages of notes about wow, we should look into this, we should look into that. And I think it's a it's a space that we can make a huge difference in if we just sort of pay attention to those brief principles that you've mentioned. Speaking of research, um, the whole reason that I ask you to come here and to sort of put things together is uh, you have found in your work and in collaboration with other colleagues some fairly striking things associated with mental health and heat emergencies or heat illness. Um, I wonder if you could take just a minute and talk a little bit about what you have found so far in your work. So what I, I did along with um, my co-authors on this paper, uh, we looked at public health records, hospitalization records uh, for the Maricopa County region. So Maricopa County is a county in Arizona. It's uh, I think the third or fourth largest in the country at this point, it houses within Maricopa County is Phoenix. So think hot, think dry, think big sprawling city. Um, so we took health data from the public health department. We pulled all of the admissions that occurred from 2006 to 2014 uh, that were coded as being associated with schizophrenia or the number of hospitalizations that occurred on a given day how does that relate to the ambient air temperature outside? Uh, and we did this not just for that same for that day that it occurred, but we also looked at the previous one, two, three, four, out to seven days prior to see if maybe it's been hot for several days. Is that leading to eventually a heat-related hospitalization or a schizophrenia-related hospitalization more specifically? Uh, so with this, we used statistical modeling to explore this relationship. We did notice a small uptick in the number of hospitalizations that were occurring during warmer overnight or minimum air temperature conditions. So usually minimum air temperature occurs at night because the sun has set. Um, sometimes it can happen other times of day, but for the most part, it happens in the middle of the night. So we were looking at those overnight minimum air temperatures to see if there might be a relationship. 
And we were able to identify that there is a small increase in relative risk uh, for hospitalizations due to schizophrenia or coded as schizophrenia in Phoenix, Arizona. For Phoenix, Arizona, that uptick on the warm side starts at around 30 degrees Celsius, which is about 86 degrees Fahrenheit, um, which you may think, how oh, 86 degrees Fahrenheit, that's not terribly hot. Um, that's at night. So you go, oh, okay, well, maybe 86 degrees at night, that's a little warm. Uh, but it surely doesn't happen that often. Like, that's that's normally my summertime high. Uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, that is the average overnight temperature during June, July, and August. So that means on average, every single night in the summer in Phoenix is going to be a higher risk night. We found that the total burden uh, or the number of cases that we could attribute to being associated with minimum air temperature, not just hot, not just cold, but all of it, was um, around 3,000 cases out of around 86,000. So not a huge number, but at least 3,000 of them, we can confidently say, if it were a different air temperature outside, a more optimal air temperature outside, uh, we may not have seen these hospitalizations occur. When we look at that in terms of overall cost or healthcare burden, um, because unfortunately, as we all know, healthcare in the U.S. is definitely driven by that bottom dollar. Um, so we're looking at three, three and a half million dollars per year of hospitalizations that might be prevented if we have more optimal air temperatures outside. So that's a big burden uh, that we have on uh, our hospitals and on the healthcare system as a whole. Uh, and that number only goes up when you think about people who are insured because they're going to be charged more for those conditions. Well, that, that's actually pretty impressive um, with regard to being able to track that down to essentially a single mental health condition, schizophrenia. I'm sure there's there's also additive issues with uh, some of the other mental health problems, but in particular, that was one of the things that I felt was striking. And that also, to a degree, no pun intended, um, impacts uh, mortality as well. Mm -hmm. It does. The 30-year average that the National Health Service reports is around 150 deaths each year that they relate to heat, um, which is the highest number per year of any weather-related hazard. So heat kills, and it kills more frequently than hurricanes, floods, tornadoes do. Um, however, those national numbers are actually on the low end. Maricopa County also tracks this internally. There are Desert City, they hit temperatures of 110 plus frequently, um, and they spend most of the summer above 100 degrees Fahrenheit in the afternoons. Um, so they also have been tracking heat-related as well as heat-caused deaths. And what they have found is that since 2016, they have been uh, breaking that 150 heat deaths per year number in the county every single year. Their preliminary report from 2022 has 425 heat-associated deaths. Now, that combines heat-caused and heat-related, uh, and that might look slightly different from how the National Weather Service would count this, um, but those numbers are alarming regardless. So those national numbers in terms of deaths mean we're underestimating in terms of the impacts um, of heat, which means it's an even more urgent issue than what we already know to be an urgent issue. Uh, particularly in the summer months. Well, that's interesting. In addition, uh, the uh, the medications that typically are used to try to keep 
uh, schizophrenics stable, keep their disease under control. Uh, I've always been taught considerably uh, during my training that they interfere a lot with heat dissipation mechanisms. And so one has to be extra cautious. You had a little bit different take on that, which um, made a lot of sense. And surprisingly, you had some data to back that up. Um, can you mention that a little bit for us? Yeah. So we'll go into a little bit of the weeds on neuropsychiatry and heat here. <laughs> um, uh, so mental health disorders in general, one of the primary things that they do is that they block or impair the transfer of information to the brain from the rest of the body. Um, one of the ways that schizophrenia, and there's a group of disorders like schizophrenia, such as bipolar and manic depressive disorder, all of those function very similarly in terms of where in the brain they block that information from uh, reaching. Uh, and that portion of the brain is the anterior hypothalamus, which is where our brains have our thermoregulatory uh, functions. So that's the part of the brain that tells us we're too cold, we need to shiver or put on more clothes. It's the same part of the brain that tells us we're too hot and then we need to sweat or drink in drink more water for becoming dehydrated. Um, so that portion of the brain is um, the one that's being impacted or a portion of the brain that's being impacted by schizophrenia. Individuals with schizophrenia are um, at a higher risk in the general population for heat-related illnesses and even heat-related deaths because their bodies aren't actually able to respond in the way that they're supposed to um, because of this disorder. So they're at a higher risk because of the conditions they have. However, as you mentioned, there are some side effects with many of these medications. Usually they're collectively called psychotropic medications. Uh, and one of the known side effects that's certainly preached and taught in the medical schools is that uh, these medications will raise the core body temperature of the person. So that means that rather than the 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit that we're all supposed to be at unless we're sick, that number will be higher for individuals on these medications. They're much closer to that threshold of moving it into um, heat-related stress or stroke. They're still at a higher risk than the general population. So if we're able to communicate to people when we prescribe this, that you're at higher risk. So whenever the general population is told there's a heat advisory outside, you should think of it as an even higher call for action from you. So basically, if, uh, yes, they're being given medication that can increase their risk of having difficulty getting rid of, rid of that heat energy that they are absorbing, but it also improves their function and improves their ability to say, I'm too hot, I'm going to go cool down somewhere. Um, okay. And that's something that I don't think has been stressed in medical school um, and in residency programs, for, in particular for those of us who deal with heat emergencies on a regular basis. And um, as the climate changes, more and more of us in areas where patients and, and populations are not acclimatized, and I can see in particular how that puts some individuals with mental illness, particularly schizophrenia, at substantial risk as well. Um, I know that you recently attended a, uh, a conference. Did you 
come across anything that was interesting? Yeah. So briefly, I'll just say the conference itself was the International Congress on Biometeorology. Um, and so this is held once every three years in various places around the world. Uh, and it's a lot of researchers who study biometeorology, which encompasses the impacts of meteorology on people, but also applies to plants and animals as well. And so we are always happy to help, willing to discuss stuff just like this, um, and are also very interested in developing avenues of partnerships um, where we can work with clinicians and providers. Maybe we are going to use previously collected data um, by your clinics, by your hospitals, uh, but we use that data then to help better inform you about how to care for your patients to improve patient outcomes. Um, that is the end goal for many of us. Um, and so sort of a, a call from my edge, not just myself, but from our community uh, and society that we would be uh, more than happy to engage with, with the medical field and the public health communities to address all sorts of human health and biometeorology questions. And so we're increasingly doing more and more work in the scientific community, we call it co-production of knowledge, um, but it's us working alongside the residents and the community uh, and valuing their knowledge and their information, uh, their participation in the research. Um, so it's not just us telling them what we're doing and therefore they should go and change their lifestyles accordingly. It is a conversation, uh, a two-way street between the two to hopefully create an outcome that is not just addressing that basic science question that we have, but also benefiting the people uh, in those communities. That is encouraging. I, those are the kinds of things that I love to hear because getting collaborative work going together from multidisciplinary uh, individuals and groups is uh, the way to make things happen. And as climate-related problems are going to be increasing and are already increasing, this is going to be impacting not just folks with mental illness, but cardiovascular problems, pulmonary disease, uh, all sorts of issues, and we need to know more about them as we go forward. So I, uh, I for one, also would like to put up uh, the request that people pay attention to this and look for ways in their community that we can collaborate uh, with folks like you, uh, as well as other clinicians and public health, and bring these things together, uh, at least to start trying to have a positive and preventive impact in our communities. Um, Peter, I appreciate the time uh, that you've taken and the information that you have shared. And um, I'm excited and I'm encouraged that there are people like you. I'd like to express appreciation to you. And I'm also very hopeful that this will not be the last time that you're able to spend a little bit of time with us and Perhaps we can also work together and uh, get some outside collaborative things going between our groups. So I'm Dr. Dave Hogan for Team Health and for Beyond Clinical Medicine, uh, standing in as guest host for Dr. Rob Strauss, and we'll hope to uh, see you the next time. I hope you've enjoyed this Beyond Clinical Medicine podcast with Dr. David Hogan and Dr. Peter Crank. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions, please contact me at beyondclinicalmedicine.org. Thank you.